but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, my name is Jonathan. Welcome back to The Body Serve. And I'm James. Uh, this is take four or five of opening this episode. I asked you to open it and you failed miserably. No, I did great at saying, you know, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm James. And then I didn't really have anything to say after that. Repeatedly. How do people do that? I don't... It's like small talk. I mean, it's not to say that what I just did was anything revolutionary. I think it just goes to show how... Um, you got inspiration by throwing me under the bus? Well, yeah. I mean, you served it up on a silver platter. Mm -hmm. uh, this is episode 271. This episode is going to be primarily a mailbag, and it's going to have a few etceteras thrown in based on stuff that's been happening inside, outside of tennis. It's not going to be much, if at all, actual tennis. Um, our bandwidth does not allow... At the, <laughs> at the moment. No. Post Wimbledon clay, not, it's, it's not, not it for me this year. We will get around to talking about, you know, results more specifically at a later date. But to recap briefly, Dominic Team is back winning matches, making a semi-final. Bernarda Pera wins back-to-back -back tournaments, much like Haddad Maya did earlier in the season. Uh, so people are out here doing things, doing good things. It's just uh, something that will not be featured on this mm -hmm. episode. Let's start with some etceteras before we get into the mailbag. Naomi and Wimfaset have split. They've ended their coaching partnership. And I feel like this was covered a bit sensationally by the tennis media and without context by a few pretty prominent reporters. She also split with her strength and conditioning coach, at the same time. But I think what was lost here is that this guy was a replacement for somebody who she had worked with for a long time, who she split with a few months ago, earlier this year. Is it shocking in this tennis day and age, in this tennis landscape, that a tennis player splits with a coach? No. Is it surprising that Naomi Osaka, with a very high-profile coach, may not want to just sit around waiting for her to come back? I mean, this is a a second pretty prolonged absence for her from the tour in the last year and a half, right? I mean, right. I see folks out here saying Naomi is going to be retiring. I mean, she may very well. Who knows? But, like, that's a leap in my mind. <laughs> yeah. She'd been working with Wim since 2019, which in the WTA is a pretty long partnership, especially for somebody you didn't, like, come up with as your your youth coach, you know? Wim is a really highly sought-after coach on the tour. I'm sure there are a lot of players and agents trying to snatch him up as we speak. Maybe he's already signed with somebody and we don't know it yet. Maybe he but was poached. It could be. But it's just, it's not surprising. You know, it's a maybe, partnership. Maybe, maybe Simona fired Patrick and poached him. Oh my god. It's a partnership that has lasted over two years. It was very successful. They won two majors together. So I just, I don't think this is a sky is falling moment. Karolina Pliskova and Sasha Bain have also split. Mm -hmm. 
Anything to add about that? Nothing to add on that. <laughs> uh, I noticed you skipped over the first item in the etc. section. Uh, yeah, I didn't want to start with that. With uh, Matteo doing a racism? Matteo posted a picture of LeBron James, who I guess he admires greatly, with a gorilla emoji over it. And Tennis Twitter found it and was like, dude, that's not okay. Which we are told by the apologists and the explanationists that it means that he was just saying that, you know, LeBron James is a beast at his chosen craft. <laughs> at uh, That he was in beast mode, you know, in that family of beastdom. Yeah, I guess the gorilla emoji in particular is common in the fitness community and the bodybuilding community. I did not know this. Somebody told me this. But I think it's always best to avoid primate, ape, or gorilla comparisons when you're talking about black people. I mean, we've been through this. Yeah, many like we times. know this. And I also do want to reject anyone who suggests that culture is a is a factor here because you can't tell me that Italians don't know the association, the racist association. I mean, in football, they have fans throwing banana peels on the pitch. Okay? At black players. Please. Specifically. Yes. So again, intent doesn't matter. Yeah, just don't do it. He he took it down. He apologized. Just don't do it again. It was up for a very long time, though. Yeah. Like a very long time. And people were commenting and, and tagging him and everything. I don't know what took him so long. As it turns out, the etc. section is fairly short. <laughs> the, the last bit of housekeeping to do before we get into the mailbag we are now selling pet merchandise we are this is very exciting to me bandanas puppy blankets what else pet mat a pet blanket and then the bandana if your pet is like vince you may have a blanket in every room several blankets in several colors in every single room we will be getting vince a body serve blanket naturally mm-hmm. because which he are, is he is the mascot which one are you gonna get i like the one there's one with like thousands of the green body serve uh like roundel logo a roundel yeah i'm just gonna oh. go you know could have said circle but i wanted to sound better mm-hmm. i like that one he looks cute in a bandana obviously but with his tricolor you have to match it well to you know his different tones you can find all that stuff on our link tree. If you want to go direct to the site, you can go to redbubble.com and search the body serve. For the designs that are there, they are changeable. So if you want something in a specific color or design, reach out to us and we will work that out for you. All right. Now moving on to the mailbag. A lot of you asked so many timely questions that the mailbag covers pretty much all the news you wanted to touch on over the past few weeks, and also a lot of other interesting stuff, hopefully. It actually stole a lot of things for, that were originally in the etc. section to then be in the mailbag section yes. because you were so on point with the questions. So I'm glad we are so in sync. The first thing that I want to talk about uh, is a question from Amanda Richmond, who asked us what our thoughts were on the Kazatkina Rublev documentary that was released earlier this week. And this was a about a one-hour documentary interview with Vitya Kravchenko, who's an independent journalist and vlogger in Russia. 
he flew to Spain, saw Kazatkina in Rublyov. Rublyov. Uh, you know, I always forget that we pronounce it incorrectly in English. Mm. Uh, watched them both practice, walked through Barcelona, and I'm always amazed at the kind of access that people like Vitya and, of course, Sofia Tartakova can get with these players and how open they are. Mm. It, it helps that there's such a familiarity between Andre and Dasha. They've known each other since they were really young. Yeah. They seem to be good friends. And so there's that built-in dynamic there as well, the chemistry. Uh, but you're right. Like the, There's a certain insider access that these two have been able to procure in their interviews that you just don't really see in Western media. No, and it's it's definitely a different approach to journalism, right? Because Tartakova is the PR agent for both Dasha and Andre, but also produces kind of features, segments, and documentaries on them. But that closeness only seems to yield something richer and not get in the way of the actual journalism. Like, this is stuff people want to watch. And so... There's such there seems to be such a difference between access journalism in kind of the Anglo-American press versus what we're seeing here. It feels a lot more packaged in the West. It feels more tied to some sort of product there the athlete might be promoting. Um, it's it's just more controlled. It's entirely self-serving as yeah. opposed to trying to produce something of substance that reveals about the subjects mm-hmm. at hand. From this small sample size, at least. Right. In tennis. And so the subjects, Dasha and Andre, may have gone into this knowing that they're things they wanted to talk about, um, you know, issues they wanted to clear up. Dasha may have done this knowing, I'd like to be open about my relationship with a woman. It could have been spontaneous. We don't know. But what we got felt raw. It felt important. And it was just fascinating to watch. It was recently done. Because I think uh, I think it was recorded in July, in July earlier this month. So the turnaround for putting this together was really quick. We saw footage of Andre watching Wimbledon, or ruefully watching Wimbledon for mm. a few seconds because he was not able to play because he was banned. That segued into a discussion about both their thoughts about the war, their position as. Russian players being banned from Wimbledon, the potential for them being banned from future tournaments going forward, what their lives are like now, what their lives could look like specifically with having a place to call home in their place of birth. Right. They were very critical of the Russian Tennis Federation, also critical of kind of the tennis establishment in the UK at least banning Russians and not really allowing them to offer any alternatives or compromises to get them to play. When this first broke, when it started going around social media, the thing that pinged our radar quickest was Dasha, in effect, coming out. Mm-hmm. And and she's she has been tiptoeing out of the closet over the past year. Uh, last year, she did a documentary with Tartakova mm-hmm. in her hometown. And if and I recall correctly, she came out as bisexual in that program. Basically, yeah. Yeah. So this is the first time I think that she has spoke openly about being in a relationship and even has identified who that person is. She posted on Instagram shortly after this documentary was released. So there's no there's no mystery now, right? One of the choice quotes from Dasha in this 
vlog, quote, living in the closet, it's pointless. You'll be constantly focused on that. Living in peace with yourself is the only thing that matters and fuck everyone else. And so that, coupled with being critical of the war in Ukraine, is, uh, I mean, is risky and brave. And when she was asked by the journalist, are you afraid you'll lose your house in Russia? Are you afraid you may not be allowed back into Russia? She broke down in tears and that was kind of the end of, of the episode. So I think it's pretty rare to see major athletes this unguarded. I think it also serves a purpose for these two players because it makes clear like we're not like that, right? They are trying to separate themselves from what the Russian government is doing. They realize that their careers could be affected, that young people in Russia who are training to be tennis stars are at a huge disadvantage, which Andre and Dasha both acknowledged. But they even, you know, at first jokingly and then seriously talked about Well, what, I mean, maybe I'll have to change my citizenship in order to keep playing at some point. I think Dasha more so than Andre realizes that these things, while still vital considerations for their personal lives and for their tennis careers, they're still secondary to the the greater issue at hand, which Mm -hmm. is the killing of Ukrainians because of this war at the hands of Russia. And I think this is one of those clear cases where multiple things can be true right we talked about how we were unsure about the the efficacy the righteousness of this ban if it made any sense if it did anything that's one issue we can't pretend that these russian players aren't affected as well that they aren't people as well and while their suffering pales in comparison to wartime struggle and suffering this has real-life ramifications for them. And I think this episode did a good job of addressing those issues without... Yeah, without having them say they're being persecuted or that they're suffering more than others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, did I say that right? Yeah, okay. I think so. And, you know, what does it mean to be a Russian tennis player who lives in Spain, who trains in Spain, but also has ties back home, right? Dasha has won Moscow. She's won St. Petersburg. They just won the Billie Jean King Cup last year. The Russian men won Davis Cup. They they have strong ties, but they do live abroad. But by doing what they did, I think they understood that it's possible that I will have to live in exile, at least for a little while. The fallout from this. So on Match TV, which is the same network that Sofia Tartakovo works for, the sports show There is a Theme. I'm sure it sounds a lot better in Russia, but that's the that's the translation I've seen. This kind of sports chat show criticized the players for what they said. They trotted out a, a parliamentarian to criticize Dasha's comments especially, calling them, quote, propaganda and a classic trick for attention. And he basically threatened her with exile, not in so many words. Tartakova then followed up with this written statement that absolutely dragged this show and its host and the politician who was on it, saying the network would never again have access to the top Russian players because she represents them. And she was subsequently suspended from her own network because of these comments. The The head producer of Match TV said her comments were, quote, contrary to the concepts of corporate and journalistic ethics, unquote, which 
basically means she should have kept all that shit behind closed doors. And for what it's worth, Evgeny Kafelnikov applauded her suspension. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In this note, Tartakova called Anisimov, who was the host of the show, and the uh, the parliamentarian, I can't remember his name, Sultan something, quote, a freak show for tongue-tied deputies, pseudo-experts, and people who are looking for five-minute fame. She also said that the host, Anton Anisimov, doesn't know anything about sports, is a bad presenter and moderator, and is the reason that she was not allowed to interview Elena Rybakina because of things he said about her on Match TV. She also said that she felt extremely guilty to Andre and Dasha because she felt that she kind of served them up on a platter. Like, she felt kind of responsible for allowing them to do this and be targets of criticism and, and essentially threats by the Russian government, or at least their representatives. She said, quote, I stood and gave the deputies inflated condoms with poop, and they threw them at my athletes. And if you're interested, she gave an extended interview with this blog on sports.ru called Eye of the People. And it's, it's only Google translated, so I don't have like an official translation. But I was struck by one of the final questions. The interviewer asked, referring to Sophia and Dasha, you both said what you wanted to say and sort of set yourself free. And Sophia responded, yes, it's like being sick. You will vomit and you will feel better. Everything bad comes out. I found it such a visceral way to describe coming out. And for Sophia, it wasn't coming out, right? It was... It, well, we don't know that. We don't know her personal life, do we? No, but I mean, what she's oh. referring to her is her okay. statement and risking, really risking her career uh, and her standing with her network and kind of coupling that with Dasha's brave decision to come out in front of the whole world. And as somebody who has come out, it's just such an interesting way to put it, like throwing up and feeling better because the process can actually be so agonizing. You know, that's, I think, when you talk about like liberation that you feel, sometimes we don't focus on the actual, what's the word? Like the actual guts of the coming out. The torture. Right. Something that... Uh that struck me from watching this was just how common the F-slur was thrown around by people. Yeah, both in Russian and Spanish. And maybe the translations, the closed caption wasn't as accurate as it could have been. And maybe if somebody out there who speaks Russian is able to translate it more closely... And say, well, that was an inaccurate representation. That would be helpful. But to our knowledge, Rublev's coach is out here just dropping it all the time. Like, hey, F. Hey, F. Yeah. He's Spanish, right? And so he he doesn't speak Russian. He was speaking in Spanish. And I'm just interested in the connotation of these words because I really don't know. But it was translated to the F slur. And so you wonder if it has... Because to me, in English, that word has a lot of power. It's like it's very jarring. To hear it. Mm -hmm. And even Dasha was translated as having said a variation of the F word. Yeah, it was strange. So just a, you know, just a heads up if you are sensitive to that. This is a good segue into a question from Geek Help asking us about our thoughts on this press release from the ATP announcing their partnership with You Can Play. Yes, the ATP announced this multi-year education partnership, they call it, with You Can Play, which is an organization that works with professional sports, 
and works on enhancing, improving LGBTQ inclusion in those sports. I wonder if going forward, you can play will suggest to the ATP that perhaps they could acknowledge gay people with their social media presence during Pride Month next year. Because <laughs> yes. that has not happened. It's interesting because they, I'm sure, have spent a lot of money with this partnership, first doing the survey, engaging this organization to do this kind of educational outreach. They're investing here. So I, like, I want to believe that it's well-intentioned. But when I see like simple fumbles, like the refusal to do the rainbow thing, which at this point is a very intentional choice, you have to wonder, I don't know, where their heart is at. But uh, we heard, I think it was last year, right? At the end of last year, maybe, we heard that they were doing this survey of ATB players asking their feelings about LGBTQ people and the atmosphere on tour. The results have come through and we got a little bit of it. We know that 65 players responded. One of the big takeaways is that the overall attitude toward LGBTQ people is positive, apparently, that players claim that they would be welcoming. However, there are a few um, red flags that 75% of respondents say they've heard slurs at work, essentially, at, at tennis tournaments and in locker rooms and stuff. But the on the practice court, I mean, we saw it on camera. Yes, with Rublev and his coach. Oh yeah, yeah. But the majority of those players would like it to stop, and they seem to understand that it contributes to an environment of of fear and potential alienation of LGBTQ people. Right, but also the majority of these sixty-five players is a drop in the bucket of the overall potential pool of players that could have participated yes it's 65 players from a pool of hundreds so uh by my math that's like what 30 percent of the players who were eligible to participate participated and the sample like who are the people who volunteered to respond nobody had to these people voluntarily took the survey so are they kind of on the inclusive side of things if they chose to take the survey the survey also noted that younger players seem to be more uh, willing to welcome LGBTQ players into the fold, which is not surprising. But, I mean, I guess I'm glad they're doing this partnership because it shows some kind of commitment and it will bring in at least some sort of education to those people who want it. But, yeah, this is sports. It said the level of homophobic language was consistent with other sports. I mean, it seemed all very unscientific to me. <laughs> it did. It w- it's a small sample for the number of players out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's something, right? Yeah. So I, d- I don't know what to think about it, to be honest. I mean, does this give me great hope for a brighter, more vibrant, f- welcoming future for LGBTQ folks in tennis going forward? It hasn't moved that needle for me. This past week... We've spent a lot of time following the fortunes of the Jamaican track women, specifically, at the World Track and Field Championships. And we got not so much a question, but (laughs) uh, a prompt. A prompt. From Trini Bev. Who wrote, Shellyanne, comma, discuss, period. And you don't have to tell me twice. Uh, You all know or you probably know by now that Shelly Ann Fraser-Price is one of my favorite athletes 
ever. She is a now a five-time gold medalist in the World Championships in 100 meters. The longevity and the consistency is unmatched. She's 35 years old, is a mother. She burst out of the gate in 2008, almost didn't make the Jamaican Olympic team that year because people wanted them to put in Veronica Campbell-Brown, who did not qualify based on her time that year. Hmm. But Shelly got in within the rules because she qualified and won gold and jamaica said we are not having a repeat of the melbourne olympic village near boycott of the jamaican track team where the team was almost thrown out of the olympic village because members of the team boycotted merlinati's presence after she finished fourth at the national trials in 2000 and was eventually given a spot in the 100 meter field ahead of the woman who won the national trials, Peter Gay Dowdy. Wow. That is interesting context that I did not know. Thank you. You knew this. You just... Uh, maybe I forgot. Yes. But Shelly Ann has gone from this young girl from Kingston who was not supposed to be a world champion, repeated her feat at the 2012 Olympics, and has now been racing for the past 14 years and has established herself as potentially the greatest sprinter of all time. 14 world championship medals, none of them bronze, 10 gold, 4 silver. Uh, it's She's 5 feet tall. I still don't know how, how she competes with taller women. Because she's so fast out of the blocks. <laughs> right. It's a constant quest to chase Shelly down. Mm-hmm. Because that, of her explosive starts. We mentioned on the last episode that perhaps we should start rethinking the way we talk about women who are mothers and continue to perform in elite athletics, in elite sport. Jane McManus made that point with respect to, who was it? I believe it was Tatiana Maria. Yeah. And you brought up Shelly Ann Fraser-Price as an example. A few years ago, I believe she missed the 2017 World Championships because she was giving birth that year. Subsequently, she came back, won the gold at the 2019 World Championships in 100 meters, and then competed at... The Tokyo Games last year, the 2021 Olympic Games that are called the 2020 Games, and it was thought she had given us the impression that that would have been it for her. And then she performed so well and she was like, I'm running faster than ever. Let's see what happens next year. Mm -hmm. And this year, she continues to run some some of the fastest times of her life, winning the 100 meters in a championship record 10.67, winning a silver medal in the 200 meters, Two one hundredths of a second off of her personal best in twenty one eight one. An event she hates. Hates. <laughs> she says, "No sir, me now run one of them again. Couldn't pay me." <laughs> but she, uh, I mean, she's running some of the best times in history. Not only the best times in her career, in history in the one hundred meters. And Shelly, she's just like I can't understand why she's not an internationally recognizable superstar. And I think, you know, you talked about that is that she is so focused and dedicated to Jamaica. Like she speaks Patois on TV. She lives and trains in Jamaica. She doesn't have these like massive endorsement deals that Usain Bolt would have had. I just, I don't get it. She just gives the impression that she is for the people. You know, she spends so much time going to fans around the track. 
Like they needed to drag her away to the medal ceremony because she was still talking and taking pictures and stuff. So if the the prompt for this question was Shelly and discuss, there's nothing but glowing accolades to lay at her feet. <laughs> and we could go on and on and on and on. Big up forever to Shelly Ann. Also to Sherika Jackson, who is one of the most accomplished sprinters man or woman across three disciplines all three sprint events in the history of the sport the only only person to medal in each of the 100 200 and 400 at the world championships you might be tempted to think well that's strange surely allison felix has done that allison has won 19 world championship medals none of them in the individual 100 meters she has won multiple in the four by one but never an individual 100-meter medal like Sharika did winning silver at these games. Yeah, the U.S. just has an unbelievable relay team. It kills me. It was so upsetting to watch yesterday because one by one, those Jamaican women are some of the fastest who ever walked the planet. But the U.S. team has got the, the everything down in the relay and holds the world record, which is an insanely fast time. Okay. It's just a matter of practice, and it's a matter <laughs> yes. of exchange exchanges of the baton. Yeah. That's all it boils down to. That's what the relays boil down to, especially in the 4 by one and that's where Jamaica fell short. I will not sit here and have you try and say that the U.S. sprint team is just so exceptional. <laughs> no. Because no. that was not what happened last just night. Just that they're well-coordinated. The time the was not mind-blasting. Jamaica was still, what, seven one-hundredths of a second behind them with two, maybe three horrendous baton passes. Yeah, and Sharika's anchor leg was scary. If she had a few more meters, that would have been done. But back to Sharika Jackson. This is a star. This is somebody who could dominate athletics for the next one and a half Olympic cycles. Like, she is going to be the one, I think. And it was really heartwarming because she screwed up the 200 of the Olympics, remember? She slowed down and she missed the final because of it. And now she showed at Worlds that she's the best possibly ever. She ran 21.45 in the 200s, passed Elaine Thompson-Hara's number two spot for the second fastest time of all time. Sharika was asked about the world record because some people question it. And she was certainly not going to be baited into that conversation. What a rude question. <laughs> Why would you ask me that? Oh my god, yeah. Joy Sims asks, I love the continuity that we're, we're keeping here. Joy Sims asks, besides tennis and track and field, do you all watch or like any other sports? If not, is there another sport you would like to be fans of? Not that tennis isn't the best, of course. <laughs> uh, I like basketball. But I'm not, I'm not like a diehard fan. Um, some would call you, and I guess by some I mean I would call you a bandwagonist fan. Oh, oh, because I live here in Toronto, I'm f a fan of the Raptors. No, because you only watch the Raptors when they're winning. That's false. During, oh my god, during the COVID season, I suffered. We all suffered along with them. Um, they, if I recall, they were still pretty decent they had a, a loss streak of like 12 in a row okay. okay okay but this past season where were you busy <laughs> it was a pretty good season actually though yes okay fine anyway fine. 
to answer the fine. actual question, I like basketball. I started with college basketball when I was in high school, but I don't really like college sports anymore for a number of reasons. Uh, but I like the NBA. And honestly, that is it. Like, that's it. I do not like other sports. I don't like fandoms of other sports. No offense to anyone, because I'm sure you're all very nice. But no, I'm really like a kind of a one and a half sport person. Mm. False. You watch golf. Yeah, you do. But I only watch it for Brooks Kepka. Okay, but you I don't want... think that makes me a fan of golf. Right, but you are not bored by it when it's on the TV. You are. If I'm watching no. it, you will. You will watch it. It depends who's playing. You will watch the it. The majors this year. The people who have won are all people I have never heard of. Mm-hmm. For myself, obviously cricket. Mm-hmm. It was just on TV before we recorded today. Baseball. I wa- I used to watch a lot of golf when I was younger. The years with Kari Webb and Annika Sorenstam and Julie Inkster and Laura Davies, Seri Pak, all those players. That's that was like the for me the golden era of women's golf. I used to watch that shit all the time. I used to, I used to even watch senior golf. I Sundays were it, <laughs> you know, because you could go from watching maybe the last day of a test match in the morning. To watching golf interspersed, th- interspersed throughout the day and then baseball and then finish up with a basketball game at night. And possibly the finals of a tennis tournament. Exactly. What else do I like? I think that's pretty much it. We're forgetting one big one. What? Figure skating. Oh, okay. I wasn't really thinking about the Olympic sports. Okay. I mean, it's a sport, right? Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah, of course. Let's shift to a more serious topic that we haven't really been great about answering in the past, to be honest. How will the tennis world be affected by climate change in the next 25 years? More night matches, stadiums with more cover, perhaps indoors, an entire calendar overhaul. This is from Am I the Drama on Twitter. And honestly, of all the major important issues of our day, I feel the least informed about climate change, which is why I've sort of avoided the topic in the past because I don't want to sound like an idiot, to be honest. It's not because we don't believe in climate change. We absolutely do. (laughs) We just like to sound informed about the nitty gritty facts of things when we talk about stuff. Yes. So from the outset, let's establish that there is a scientific consensus that the planet's temperatures are rising and that human activities are the primary driver. So there was a story from 538 recently that was very helpful that focused on tennis because it's a sport that is one of the most vulnerable to climate change because it features long matches outside. It travels around the world during those places' warmest times of the year, in some cases, and there's no subs, right? The players are out there alone. It's not a team. There's not really any breaks. And we often see players suffer physically yes. to such a great extent that players are collapsing on court. And it's often framed as, well, that's a lack of conditioning. You've got to be better. And so mm. the response that tennis and tennis players have taken is to put their bodies under more rigorous training in more rigorous conditions. Like, you have to go and train in the hottest of Florida, in the hottest of Dubai, to make sure that this doesn't happen to you as temperatures get warmer and hotter year to year. Yeah, 
this was covered in the 538 story. Tennis leadership has encouraged that. And there is scientific evidence for it that if athletes acclimate to heat within, you know, one, two, three weeks, they will begin to retain more water as they play. Their heart rate will stay down. And really the, the main issue is that if your body temperature rises over 101, then you're putting yourself at risk for heat-related illnesses. And so all of these climate models from the UN, from NASA, everybody is predicting over the rest of the century, the next 78 years, that the Earth could warm by 6 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit compared to the pre-industrial era. Like, that's a lot. And it's, it's becoming more rapid, unfortunately. And so we can see this in, like, insane weather events like all these heat waves and tsunamis and fires and floods and these things will probably become more numerous and i admit like that's probably the part of climate change i understand the least is why those things are happening i was really we did meteorology in like eighth grade earth science really bad at that but the point is tennis is going to become more and more difficult and we have seen tennis tournaments mishandle the heat so badly in the past we but we've also seen measures to help athletes deal with it but moving forward like do i trust say the australian open to have players health in mind as the number one concern we've seen the australian open hem and haw over these different ways of measuring temperature and heat index remember the wet bulb globe temperature we saw players collapse from the very, very poor air quality during those wildfires in Australia. Like, do I trust tennis leadership to handle this properly? I don't know. Like, I think that the bottom line has a lot to do with it, unfortunately. So there has to be a way to incentivize players' health in a financial way. You can't have players collapsing out here. There's a reckoning coming, it seems. Yeah, and, and, you know, they instituted the heat rule, like there's mandatory breaks between sets. Um, they have the ice towels, those fan vacuum tube things. Is that enough? Probably not, but I'm not a scientist. But I do think over the next few decades, tennis will probably have to move inside. It, it seems like the, the rational option here, especially in places like Australia when you're playing in the dead heat of summer down there. One of the, the, I don't know how easy it is, but one of maybe the the targeted responses that could keep tennis outdoors is to find a way to control the air quality and the heat inside a stadium with an open roof. That seems to be mm. something that scientists should be able to tackle. With an open roof. With an open roof. Or to cancel play if the ambient air quality mm-hmm. is so bad. Right, if it's not something that can be addressed. Like Middle East tournaments, I don't know. Will will those tournaments survive? Should they survive? Should they move indoors? Um, I do think at some point, like tennis is very famously conservative and slow to address problems, especially calendar problems. So I don't see, like over the next few decades, I don't really see them shuffling around tournaments, especially majors, to avoid hot months in those places. Mm. I just don't see it happening. I think those places, Tennis Australia, the USTA, would gladly spend millions and millions of dollars to build more indoor courts rather than lose their spot on the calendar. Michel Jabeur asks, 
I would really like a deep dive on Yulia Putintseva. I'm sorry to disappoint, sir, but that is likely never to happen on this show. <laughs> we were not prepared for it today. It's n never say never. I said uh, I said likely <laughs> never. It, it yeah. could possibly. Why don't Why don't you just watch your flat Earth videos and shut up? The obvious, less obvious question: What about your overall opinion on her? I'm not a fan. I'm not one of these folks on tennis Twitter who is enraptured by the antics, by the scams. Mm. Because if it's not one, it's another. Yeah, you like, know that what? doesn't tickle me. I, as you know, I I love mess, but I need somebody who can back it up. And yeah, she's she's a very good player, but with her, it's always something. I don't. It it must be very tiring to follow a player where, like, it's there's always there's always something. And I'm I've been feeling this way about Ostapenko, so please please do not cancel me for this. You were pushing back at me on the last episode. She's entertaining, and like, it's not worth getting all up in arms about. Oh my God, she said this like. Literally, who cares? But I do think the WTA could use a messy queen who consistently wins. Well, that that was my a point. Villain. That was my point. Talk your shit, but win. Yeah. Don't be talking about how, well, if I coulda, woulda, shoulda. It's like, like, no, win and then tell me why you're so much better than everybody. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, just, a, it's just absurd at this point. <laughs> Michelle also asks... Who are three likely new additions to the top 10 in under three years? This is squarely not in our wheelhouse. One of, <laughs> one of the strengths, I think, of this show is that we know our limitations. <laughs> we know what we're good at. We know when we're in our bag. And uh, predictions, prognostications, not one of them. I will, however, take the conservative route and continue on the Clara Towson train. That's my one. Yeah. Do you have anybody to put forth? Yeah, I think Marie Boskova has a real shot, uh, and I hope she does it. And potentially Veronica Kudermatova. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're saying you don't know anybody on the collegiate circuit, anybody on the, no, girl, the future like, circuit? I do not follow juniors at all. And uh, sorry, sorry about it. The next one is from Delbert, who is an IRL friend as well as a friend of the show. Snack update. Any new recommendations? And we've got to get this right because often he brings us the snacks that we mention on the show. So I shouldn't mention the candy from the dollar store? Uh, no, we used to eat that with Dalbert years ago. Should I uh, say we like caviar? <laughs> <laughs> Just as a snack. Quail eggs? Um, this convenience store down the road has... A bunch of different like cereals that they don't sell in Canada. I don't know where they get them. It's kind of enhanced versions of the regular cereals you know. So they have uh, this caramel cinnamon toast crunch. They have all these different kinds of Lucky Charms I never heard of. Captain Crunch. And I gotta say, the originals are kind of where it's at. Hmm. That like they're tried and true for a reason. So all the extra stuff, the churro, cinnamon toast crunch, it's just, it doesn't hit. So I realize I just told you things that I don't like. Snacks? Uh, Tostito scoops, man. Like, that is a classic. You cannot miss. And I've started making guacamole at home and different kind of dips. 
I made... Oh, when was the last time you did that? A little while ago. <laughs> we haven't had avocados in the house for a while. Um, we, You had ordered biryani mm-hmm. a few days ago, and I'm like, I really want to know how to make this at home, or at least some approximation of it. Um, and so I made the yogurt sauce that goes with it. Amazing. But snacks, I'm drawing a blank. Yeah, I don't really snack. I keep it very simple. I have... Mm. I mean, I was roasted last time when I said I liked Fig Newtons. Like, I was called <laughs> an old you like hag. old people snacks. I was called decrepit. Uh-huh. I was called absurd. Not dissimilar to words I've been called on the internet this week. <laughs> and what else do you like? Werther's Originals? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I haven't exactly. had a Werther's in forever. You know what's good? Haribo... Watermelons. Yes. The watermelons. Those are really good. And also, when we were in Spain, we got these Haribo. Is it Haribo? Or whatever. You know what I'm talking about. These strawberry candies, which I cannot seem to find in North America. Those were out of this world. The snack that I have the most is something I take with me on my way to work. Is Nature Valley Almond Granola Bars. (laughs) Classic, simple. You know, it gives a lot. Yeah, and the Tennis Connection. Remember the Nature Valley Bowl? Or the Nature Valley whatever? Classic? The Nature Valley Tree Forest Open. Yeah, like one year they renamed all the grass tournaments Nature Valley something. TikTok Tennis asks, as R&B fans with diverse tastes, thank you, what's your favorite R&B cover of a song from another genre? Currently, Ors has been revisiting Maxwell's cover of This Woman's Work by Kate Bush. Yes. Uh, so I read the first sentence of the question and immediately thought of this woman's work. Uh, so well done. I would have picked that if uh, TikTok didn't mention it already. I did make a small list on my notes app. You want to hear it? Oh, you did? Yeah. I prepared. This is like one of the only ones I prepared for. One of the obvious answers is Whitney's I Will Always Love You, which I guess technically is more of a pop ballad. Right. Whitney's version isn't really R&B to me. Mm-hmm. I would offer I Swear by All for One, which I guess could vary into pop as well. Sure. Uh, there was so much crossover, especially yeah. in the 90s. But I would give that one as, as one of my options. Was that like a country song it before? It was. It was originally a okay. country song. Um, I have a few, and they sort of cover soul and R&B. Killing Me Softly with his song by Roberta Flack is actually a cover, and of course... Hers was famously covered by the Fugees in the 90s, but uh, Roberta covered Lori Lieberman. It was a song written by Gimbal and Fox, and apparently it was inspired by a time where Lieberman went to see Don McLean sing, and she wrote all of these sort of poem fragments on little napkins. And it's referenced like when he read my letters out loud in the song. Uh, so Roberta obviously made that song a classic. Roberta Flack and Donny Hathaway's version of You've Got a Friend by Carole King. And in the early 70s, a lot of people were trading that song back and forth. Mm -hmm. And they all bring something really cool to it. James Taylor's version is the most successful commercially. And he worked really, really closely with Carole King and Joni Mitchell while Carole was making Tapestry. James was making Mudslide Slim. This incredible, like artistic like the peaks of these people's genius they were working together but my favorite version of the song is actually roberta and donnie's and then what else proud mary yes originally recorded by 
Creedence Clearwater Revival, CCR. Which was very much like a Southern Bayou folk rock song. And I would also say Bringing on the Heartbreak by Mariah Carey, originally done (laughs) by Def Leppard. Mm -hmm. Um, I also want to mention minor old. Yeah, I like old music. A House is Not a Home. Luther Vandross, to me, is the definitive version, but it was a Burt Bacharach pop song from the 60s. It's very much giving Burt Bacharach. Yeah. And Stevie Wonder's cover of the Beatles' We Can Work It Out, which made the song uh, just something it wasn't. It, Mm -hmm. It just, it's an incredible version. Lisa Crispin asks, I hear pundits sounding critical of Serena starting to play, saying she's not fit. She should have played more before Wimbledon. I don't hear that about Rafa or Federer when they come back from injury. Any thoughts on why people are so critical of her? No. Are there there any guesses as to why people would be more critical of a black woman than they are of these other two dudes? I have thoughts. Uh, And so um, not, not brushing the racism aside because that's very much part of it. I think a lot of commentators or journalists don't really like her. Just don't mm-hmm. really like her. Okay. Uh, and the reasons for that are obviously uh, an amalgam of many different things. I'm not going to sit here and say that I haven't seen that in person. Exactly. Because I have. Yeah. So she's treated differently because she is black and a woman, yes. And I think a lot of journalists are... Uh, I mean, it's not their role to tell you how they feel about a player, but I think they just simply don't really like her that much. We've always said that transparency in this regard is the best practice in quote-unquote sports journalism. And it's something Mm -hmm. we try to do. Tell you who we like and don't like. (laughs) And will I say, like, as a fan, are there times where I'm thinking, oh, I wish she had played a warm-up. You know, if she had a few more matches, I think she would be really fit. Or she would be in better form. Sure, definitely I've said that. Well, there's a difference between commenting strategically about your lead up and your practice and your preparation without it veering into, oh, she looks fat. Exactly. Her body is out of shape. So when it it becomes a commentary on her body, specifically what this black woman looks like, who is playing tennis at a time when almost nobody plays tennis at that level. Like this is unprecedented. Like, there is no frame of reference here. Mm-hmm. So... In a, in a way, there has been... There's never been a frame of reference for her or her sister or their careers. So, to be putting those expectations and those commentaries on them throughout the course of their career, those are all projections. Projections that have been informed, a lot of times, by a racist lens. Right. And they're often admissions, right? Um, we've seen with Serena and Venus, like, they do things that are seen as ridiculous or weird or unconventional and they make room for other people to do those same things and not have to go through that barrage of criticism which is actually a great thing right like you want to leave a better a better world for the people coming behind you but they are often the ones who have to bear the brunt of it at the beginning but then these same people then get to consume the heirs and their careers And uh, through the enjoyment of those people can then absolve themselves of their previous racism by saying, well, hey, now, I like this person. (laughs) Oh, no. 
But to, to, to answer more specifically and to take a, a fine-toothed comb to this question, if we were to actually engage and to find out if there are actual reasons beyond what we've just said, I think age is an actual factor here. I don't think yeah. anybody expects Roger Federer, who is at a similar age as Serena, to come back and do anything the way Serena could if she really gave it a go. Well, I think that's the difference, right? Is that the expectations of Serena are so incredibly high. Like people expect her to come back and be able to contend for that 24th major title. Also, Serena will come back after not playing a year and not playing a lead up outside of doubles and say, clown question, bro, when asked, what are your expectations? Well, and those are the expectations that she has held, that she has also set for herself. Mm hmm. I think there's also, if you compare between Rafa and Serena, Rafa taking six months off at the end of, when was that now? 2020, right? No, last year. At the end of 2021. (laughs) Rafa taking the second half of the year off to come back. It's not crazy that he could still play well and play at a high level, especially given the minions on the ATP tour. (laughs) Well, we're not questioning Rafa because... When he has come back from injury over the past year, he's been at an incredibly high level. And Serena has done that before, too. Right, just not recently. But if this were her at age 35 going on 36, we would be thinking about it as an expected thing. Yes, yes. More along the lines of, you know, what we've seen with Rafa, Mm -hmm. right? But I think the difference for for her here now is that she is actually in an age range where this is not it's almost untenable for well, grand slam wins winning the actual tournament to happen you know these younger women should not be allowing her to flourish no like they really should not and if serena does that's a testament to her talent but i think a lot of it is like she has lost a lot of speed so to be completely fair right she looks like a different player than she used to be a lot of her skills and touch and everything is still there, but she's lost a lot of speed. And Rafa has as well, but it's not as noticeable. Yet. Right. He right. is he is five years younger than her. Mm-hmm. Four to five years younger than her. But I think, like you, like you referenced earlier, a lot of people just look at her. They look at a woman's body and they say that person is unfit. There's, no, there's not any scientific backup to that. They're just looking at her and saying, I don't think that person looks like an athlete mm-hmm. and then when she in in prior years showed up and won even though she didn't look the way she was expected to look as somebody who sh- would be winning this tournament then there were mm-hmm. other excuses and reasons and explanations for why it happened right there's always something it's a no-win situation for her period arun asks any new tv shows you guys are watching would also love to hear your thoughts on renaissance after it comes out well, that goes without saying. New TV? Like, not a ton, I realized. We, of course, watched the most recent season of Borgen, which I guess is being advertised as a separate show, called Borgen Power and Glory, which is a Danish political drama. Incredible. The Lake on Amazon Prime, we watched it. I wouldn't say it was like five stars, but it was entertaining. It was like three and a half. <laughs> It's uh, some Canadian content for you. 
it's set in like uh, Ontario cottage country, which is a huge thing if if you live here. Uh, I don't know anyone with a cottage, unfortunately. It was cool to see Julia Stiles on TV. Yes. And there's some gay stuff. It's just like a, you know, a summer romp. The mm-hmm. things that you want from a summer show. Speaking of gay stuff, Heartstopper. We'll shout that from oh, the mountaintop. Oh my god. Have we talked about Heartstopper? I mean, we don't have to go into detail. Yeah. Just watch it. It's been a few months. Just just watch that. I'm watching the new season of Evil, which is it's not new TV, but it's the third season is airing now which is by the kings who did the good wife and the good fight and it's like all of those sort of fantastical weird elements from those more conventional shows are heightened in evil because it's set in like the catholic church and you got people chasing around cases every week about demonic possessions and there's a sort of they're they're kind of leaving you in the dark like if the supernatural things are actually real or they're some of them are total fabrications but it does a good job of like balancing the uh that suspension of disbelief mm, i just totally blanked out on everything you were just saying because i have zero interest oh in well, well christine lottie is in it um the guy from the good wife who played the drug dealer lamont bishop is the character yes name. mike coulter is the actor and uh ben from lost and Andrea Martin, who is Canadian, plays uh, someone named Sister Andrea. From My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Yes. The Bobopsy. Exactly. We enjoyed Somebody Somewhere. That one was cute. Oh, that was really good. Yeah. We've been watching a lot of reality TV. Uh, just way too much Drag Race. A lot of Below Deck. All Several of, franchises. All of the Below Decks. And we also watched Real World Homecoming, which was... That was interesting. Yeah, to me is a step above it because it's very meta. If you live through that, like the real world New Orleans is this great artifact of, I don't know, kind of like pre 9-11 American life. Um, a lot of us like grew up as queer kids watching Danny as this out gay person who was dealing with some super important things that we didn't understand because we were too young. But uh, it did a interesting job of applying a 2022 lens to what these people went through and now they have better language and better life experience to kind of understand and explain it back to tennis shola asks given everything we know right now would you pick either the big two or the field to win the men's u.s open title mm-hmm. well at this point it's the well, big one well hun it's the I- big one versus <laughs> the field well, uh, at this stage, I don't know how the big one is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I would pick Rafa now against everybody. I think it's 50-50 mm. at this point. He also asks, if you could trade one slam final loss for one slam final win for Venus Serena, which matches would they be? What does that mean? Meaning a, a slam final that they lost, that you would turn it into a win. Which one would it be? Oh, um, yeah, sorry. It would be the 2018 U.S. Open. It would be the 2017 Australian Open Mm. for me. Mm -hmm. That semifinal deserved a follow-up with a title. That season deserved a title. And if not for that one, then I'm sorry, Sloan. But that backhand goes in the net. And Venus goes on to win that match and beat Madison Keys in the final. (laughs) But I have a question for you. Okay. What was it like with your 
foray into tennis parody this week. How was that experience tennis for you? Par- parody or par- parody? What does that mean? With your tweet about oh, Nadal. It was a horrible experience. No, it wasn't horrible. Like, so uh, one particular member of Nole Fam who's known for tweets that are, shall we say, unburdened by reality, tweeted about how Rafa has ties to Bill Gates and POTUS and the regime that controls the United States, and they have a vested interest in Rafa winning the U.S. Open. Which is why he won't be allowed into the country. Novak. Because he's unvaxxed. Exactly. Yeah, it's a it's a conspiracy against Novak by the Bill Gates Foundation, I guess. Um, anyway, so all these tweets were coming out about, you know, satirizing the original tweet. It became a meme. Yes. And so, you know, I found the picture of Rafa and Rihanna from, I don't know, must have been like 2006 or seven, way back. They're both young and beautiful and... Anyway, I thought it was very clear that it was a parody because I said the regime of Fenty Beauty that controls the United States. But some people have very poor reading comprehension. Oh my God, the names I got called. Well, I said that Julio Iglesias and his daughter-in-law, Anna Kornikova, who control the Democratic Party. Like, are you all okay? People looked at these tweets and said, I think those are sincere. I was alarmed by many things, but the thing that was most alarming was, I think, the near equal number of Novak and Rafa fans who were shook by this this tweet. <laughs> I like, think, I've, I, yeah. I've never been called a Novak lover and a Novak hater in as much volume as I was these past yes, few days. I think of all of the names, a Novak fan was the most jarring. I've never been called that. Pat asked via DM, do you think that the let when serving is a waste of time? I often get frustrated when a perfectly good serve that might even have been an ace barely clips the net, yet the player has to serve again, and more often than not goes on to miss the first serve. So how do you feel about the service let? I I think it stays. I want it to stay. If you make the distinction between or the one that just barely clipped that didn't really upset the trajectory or the the direction of the ball, the course of play, where do you draw that line? How do you draw mm-hmm. that line? Because you're, in, again, you're inviting subjectivity into it yes. and people are going to be upset. And then so you either allow all lets or no lets. And I just cannot fathom a match being decided by, ah, clip the net, <laughs> drops over. Like, that, that's no, crazy to no, me. No, that would be awful. And... The I do have an issue with the machines, though. I think these machines at some events are not calibrated correctly because you see players who are even confused, like, what? You know, it mm-hmm. seems the ball sailed over the net easily and then the machine beeps. And then the ump says, I can only go by the machine. Yeah. Like, I have no power to over. So I think this might be one of those cases where the eye and the ear test might be the best way to go forward. Just let the umpire be like, yeah, that was a let. Yeah. Don't take the technology out of it. That way we can get rid of those really stupid ones. Right. That would not have caused any interruption to play at all. Mm -hmm. But overall, I don't really think it causes a great delay to the game. No, I really don't. She goes on to ask, this query has been on my mind since Wimbledon. I am loath to ever give any slam an asterisk. 
I usually oppose that vehemently, but I can't help but think that Wimbledon, more especially the men's singles, might just warrant an asterisk. Maybe a baby one. I'm thinking absence of Russians, COVID cases, no ranking points, and retirement of Rafa at the semifinal stage all merge to warrant one. I'd be interested in your thoughts. <laughs> That's a very loaded question. I, like Pat, I'm generally very opposed to asterisks. Like, you know, if a tournament is held and you beat seven people, then you win and there's no asterisk. But in this one, yeah, there was some interference, right? Like a lot of people were not allowed to enter the field based on normal ATP and WTA rules because they were Russian. Now, do I think that those players being in the field would have disrupted uh, a Novak or Rybakina win? I have no idea, right? Like those players could have changed the entire complexion of the draw. That doesn't mean like if Medvedev played, he would have won, but there could have been like a butterfly effect. There's way too much uncertainty. You you think about this with this question as the what ifs. What about if this had happened, if this had happened, if that person had been en- had been allowed to play, but they are equal, if not more number of unknowns, if these people were in the draw? Right. So right. it's like, did we get Gaston winning Wimbledon because of all the things that happened? No, we got Djokovic right. which, with, a, <laughs> we, with a full field. We got a six-time winner. With a full again. field, that's probably what was going to happen anyway. So I generally don't, well, not even generally, I just don't believe in asterisks unless they're slams played by Margaret Court. And even then, they shouldn't be asterisks. They should just be wiped from the record. <laughs> <laughs> and in that case, they're not asterisked. But we acknowledge that open error records should be viewed separate and apart mm-hmm. from pre. In this case, I was, you know, I, I was scrolling Twitter and people are still complaining about the points thing, right? Like, Kyrgios would be ranked whatever, whatever, if there were points from Wimbledon. And at this point, I really have to laugh about this line of thinking. Because after Russian and Belarusian players were banned, the obvious response from ATP players and WTA players is a boycott. So I really, like, I cannot abide this thinking, this complaining about the points thing when your labor leaders on both tours never even deign to suggest a boycott. Like, you, your fellow players have been banned from the draw. They're not allowed to play. Tennis United, baby. What, what are we doing here? If you are a collective group, this is your collective action. Like, this is, at this point, your only recourse. Wimbledon made a decision. Your governing body, the tour that you play for, made a reactionary decision. Those two are going at it. You have a choice too. Right. I'm not saying it's a good choice, but I I just would like some acknowledgement that like, yeah, I made the choice that I wanted the money and I wanted to play Wimbledon. Undercover DB asks, if you could each choose one year of tennis to go back and experience for the first time, which year would you go back to and why? Am I going to read the rest of this question? (laughs) <laughs> and I want as much Badusi serve sass and wit as possible. Please and thanks. <laughs> Very polite. Uh, to me, for me, it's a no-brainer. It's 1999 WTA season. We did a whole episode about why. Uh, but Serena winning her first, the drama with Lindsay, with Amelie, with Martina, with Venus... Like, this season has everything. Steffi and Martina at the French Open. Steffi retiring after Wimbledon. Uh, The girls were fighting, but the tennis was top-notch. 
I'd like to go back to my very first year in 1994. I'd like to experience it again with what I know now and see how my perspective of it is different. Like, would, mm. I, would I have been fans of those players back then? Would I have been standing Conchita. Arancha and Andre winning the US Open? Mm. How would I have felt about that Wimbledon final? I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> With what you know now. <laughs> uh, and just be able to get an idea of how the game really, truly has changed in that time. Mm. I, would also, I would really like to go back to 1971 or the early 70s just to see the birth of the Virginia Slims tour and all the there was a lot of general upheaval in tennis at that time there was this huge boycott by the male players of Wimbledon right over Nikki Pillich um there was all this infighting about like who would control the tours and I'd be interested in the way that it was talked about like the way it was perceived I think that's cheating why? I think you're supposed to go back and pick a year that you've already experienced. It says for you to go back and watch and experience for the first time. Oh, 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 I guess that was that was implied in the question. Because if we've never seen it before, then it would by default be the first time. Okay, right? fine. Then I would love to see Serena Slam 1.0 uh, 2002. But that you'd only get to see three of them. Sure, but it's confined <laughs> to one year. <laughs> And of course, I I would love to live through 2012 again when everybody thought Serena was basically done and then she did all that. As always, a few of the questions won't make it to air. It doesn't mean that we didn't appreciate them or that they weren't yeah. good questions. There were a lot of great questions that we didn't get to. Um, we might get to them on a future episode. As always, you can find everything BodyServe related at linktree.com. You can find the link to Redbubble, where you can now purchase pet merchandise, pet blankets, bandanas, mats. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you very much. Thank you.